Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, Acts chapter 20. So Acts chapter 20, by the time, and I know the women are going through Acts, and so I apologize for kind of jumping ahead here, but uh, uh, anyways, um, Teresa and I will have that discussion later. <laughs> she didn't know I was teaching on this. Um, by the time we get to Acts chapter 20, Paul is pretty much wrapping up his, uh, his third missionary journey. Um, he's setting sail with his companions uh, from Greece. They're passing through Macedonia, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he was sensing that the Lord was sending him to Jerusalem. And on his way here in Acts chapter 20 to Jerusalem, they stop, they, 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 uh, they uh, go to the port at Miletus, which is a little way south of Ephesus. And from there, Paul calls for the, Ephes- uh, the, the uh, elders at Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. Uh, now, he didn't stop at, at Ephesus for a reason. We'll look at that in a, in a moment. But Paul had founded the church of Ephesus, and he had spent three years there. So he had developed some, uh, you know, close relationships, um, and it seems like he purposely passed by Ephesus itself because he wouldn't have had time to visit with everyone, and I can totally relate to that. We've lived in Minnesota for a good chunk of time, but we also lived in California for a good chunk of time, and when we go back to California, you know, there's family to visit, there's friends to visit, and there's lots of them, and it's like, how do you fit it all in? And then sometimes it's like, well, we can't see everybody. You know, a lot of times I would go out because, like, my dad was sick when he was still alive, and so my focus was on seeing my dad. But, you know, the friends are there. They're like, well, do you have time to visit with us? And, and sometimes I say, you know, I really don't. Um, but I'm sure that's how Paul felt. Coming to Ephesus, all those friendships that he had built up, and it's like, I, I can't. I don't have time to visit everybody. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So instead, he stops at Miletus, and uh, he asks for the elders to come and meet him there. Why was uh, Paul in such a rush to get to Jerusalem? And it says there that he was trying to get there on Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the feasts that Israel celebrated, and I think... Paul was really, you know, he felt that the Lord was leading him to go to Jerusalem. And I think Paul was sensing, man, the Lord wants to do something big in Jerusalem. And so if you think about it, you know, why would he choose uh, Pentecost to try to get there? Well, Jews and proselytes from all the Roman Empire, basically from all over, would be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So in Paul's mind, I can just imagine, man, this is an opportunity to minister to the maximum amount of people at one place at one time. I mean, you're going to maximize your ministry. Let's do it at Pentecost. And so that's probably what's motivating Paul to get there uh, to uh, Jerusalem by the Feast of Pentecost. Not only that, but probably in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, man, that, that one particular Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church there, it's like, man, God's got to do something big, so I'm going to get there by Pentecost. Well, we don't know exactly why, but I'm guessing that's those are the reasons why. Um, so, and so Paul stops near Ephesus, but not at Ephesus, and he calls for the elders of the church. And he senses that this is going to be the last time that he sees them in his life. And so he wants to encourage 
these leaders of the church in, Eph- in Ephesus one last time. And, and if, as we go through this, you just, he just, he's going to pour out his heart to these people. Um, and in this, he mentions eight important characteristics of ministry. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And they're characteristics that Paul himself showed by example. And he felt it was important enough to make an effort to impart these things, these, these characteristics, to these leaders in the church. Even though he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, it's like, I, wanna, I still need to stop and pour out my heart to these guys. And so it was important for Paul to get this message across to the elders. And so it's important for you and I, I think, to look at this this morning. And so beginning in verse 17, it says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. The very first characteristic that Paul was trying to get across to these leaders was transparency. Transparency. Look, he says, you know in what manner I always lived among you. Paul was reminding them of what they already knew, how he lived among them. They knew how Paul lived his daily life. Um, he didn't just, you know, show up and teach a Bible study and then go off to some other town and be by himself. He lived among them for three years. They didn't just see Paul on Sundays or whenever they met. They saw him day in and day out. They saw times of happiness and joy, but they also saw the times when Paul would shed tears when he was crying, when he was going through trials and difficulties. Paul didn't have to tell them. It wasn't like it was a shock to them. What, Paul? I didn't know that you had trials during your ministry here. No, they they saw it. They saw it because Paul was uh, transparent. It wasn't like, you were humble. When was that? No, no, they saw Paul in humility as he ministered among them. He says, I serve the Lord with all humility. That word means to be low-minded not having to be recognized or acknowledged. There was no ministry that was below Paul. He was humble in that. You know, one of the hardest things to do in ministry is to be transparent. Now, and I know that from my own experience because, you know, you're the pastor. You've you, you got to have it all together. You know, you've got to be the one that kind of steadies the ship and stuff. And, and reality is, man, I go through trials. I, go, I shed tears. I have difficulties just like you do. And, and sometimes it, it's hard to be transparent when you feel like you're in a place where I can't, I can't really let down my guard, I can't let people see who I am and all that because I've got to portray this image. And, and that's, a, that's a real danger with ministers and with anyone in, in Christian ministry. Paul reminded them how he served with tears and trials. You know what's interesting about that? We don't read about that, do we? We don't read about the, the trials and the tears that Paul shed there uh, by the plotting of the, uh, the Jews and all those things in, in Ephesus. But you know what? Those leaders that lived among him, they saw it. They saw it. Um, he lived transparently among them. They saw Paul's tears. But you know, the reason why you and I don't know all the tears that Paul shed is because that wasn't the focus of his ministry. It wasn't like, poor me, you know, I've got all this stuff going on. Um, I, I don't know if you ever have sat under a pastor or been listening to someone that are just like, it's always poor me, you know, this stuff's going on in my life and stuff. Um, that wasn't Paul. And that's why we don't read it. We don't know 
But those Ephesus, those leaders there, they knew because they lived among him. They saw it with their own eyes. What would cause Paul to weep in ministry? I think there's a hint that he gives us in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through all these things that he's endured through the ministry. Shipwrecks, going without hunger, uh, you know, fear of bandits and fear of wild animals and all these things that he goes through. And then he, at the end of that whole list of all these things that he's endured in ministry, he says this in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches who is weak and I'm not weak who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation Man, that's the heart of a pastor that Paul he had empathy for the people that he ministered to he had compassion he had a shepherd's heart and when one of them went astray man it just crushed Paul when he saw someone stumble and they, they're this like, man, they fell for the trick of the enemy, he burned with indignation. Why? Because, man, the enemy's getting a hold of these guys' lives. I can relate to that. I've, I've, I don't know if I've shed tears necessarily, but I've, I've been brokenhearted over some of the things that have happened as I've been in ministry. I guess I can say that I've shed some tears over things. But that's what, that's, I think that's what Paul is referring to. Not only did... The Ephesians know how Paul served their Lord in humility and with tears and trials, but they also knew, look at verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. The second characteristic here that Paul uh, is, is imparting to his people, to these elders, is consistency. He says, I kept back nothing that was helpful. That word kept back, it's an interesting word. It it has a nautical meaning, but also a medical meaning. It means to draw in or to contract. And in in a nautical sense, it's used of furling sails, of closing fingers, of drawing back for shelter, of keeping back one's real thoughts. And so, you know, as a nautical, furling sails. I mean, Paul is interesting. As he teaches, as he writes letters, he writes what's kind of going on around him. And so he's on a ship. And so he uses this terminology of furling sails, of keeping back. You know, you're just basically, I guess, furling, you know, the you know, extending, I don't know what you call it. Maybe you sailors know when you, when you open up your sails to catch the wind. This is just the opposite, right? It's just bringing it in and closing it up. Um, the medical, uh, uh, medical uh, sense of this word, it it's, was used by physicians of withholding food from patients. Withholding food. Um, you know, here's what Paul is trying to get across to them. If Paul knew something was harmful to them, he was going to warn them. He wasn't going to keep back. He wasn't going to hold back and not share anything because, well, I don't want to offend that person. But no, if he saw that they were in danger, man, he was going to warn them. On the same token, too, if Paul knew that something was helpful for them, helpful, he was going to encourage them. He was consistent in that regard. He says he proclaimed or he preached the gospel message. He taught the gospel message. He did it both publicly and privately and from house to house. And I think it's interesting that he mentions from house to house because most likely in Ephesus, they didn't have one great big church like a mega church in Ephesus where they all met. It was probably house churches. And these elders were probably leaders of each of these house churches in Ephesus. Um, 
uh, and he proclaimed and taught the gospel message to both Jews and Gentiles. And his message was always the same. He was consistent. Uh, His message was the same to everyone and at all times. And what was his message? Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Two things. That's that's the, the core essentials of the gospel. First of all, repentance. The word is metanoia. It means a change of mind. He says repentance towards God. In other words, it's an acknowledgement that we've offended a holy, righteous God. It's a recognition that we're sinners. We've sinned against God. That's, that's repentance. It's a, it's a change of heart and a change of mind, turning around of a different direction. And then recognition, uh, oh, excuse me, I said recognition that we're sinners, and then faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. So you recognize you're a sinner, that you've offended a holy God, but then you put your faith in Jesus Christ because he paid the price for your sin. He died on the cross for you. And so you're putting our trust in him for our salvation and making him the Lord of our life. That's, that's the gospel, repenting and believing. And Paul's message was the same everywhere. He was consistent in it. Didn't matter who he was talking to. It wasn't like, well, you don't need to hear that, but you guys do. No, no, everyone needed to hear that same gospel message. Verse 22, And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The third characteristic here that's pointed out is is resolve. Resolve or determination. Paul here says that he felt bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. He felt like, it's not like he had a choice. He just felt like he was just totally led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The question is, was it the Holy Spirit leading Paul? Because if you look there in the words, the spirit is in small. It's not in uppercase. And so was he being uh, led by the Holy Spirit? Or was he feeling compelled in his own spirit? You know what the answer I think is? Is yes. <laughs> I think it's a moot point. I love that word, moot. But anyways, I used to say mute, and this guy says, no, it's not mute, it's moot. And I'm like, okay, I love that word. Um, it's moot. Why? Can you tell I like saying that? <laughs> it's moot. Um, because here's what I think. Paul, as you look through the gospel or the, the, the letters that he wrote and you, and you go through Acts and you find out about Paul, Paul lived his life sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's evidenced throughout the scriptures. Um, he recognized when the Holy Spirit would close doors and when the, Lord, when the Holy Spirit would open doors. You know, he wanted to go to Asia for a time there and the Holy Spirit prevented him. How did the Holy Spirit? He sensed that it was the Holy Spirit telling him don't go and then later on there was a man from macedonia saying come over and help me and and paul said like we determined we we sensed that was the holy spirit telling us to go so paul was sensitive to the holy spirit so i think paul felt that the holy spirit was sensing or was leading him to go there but also in his own resolve paul by his own spirits like if that's what the holy spirit wants me to do that's what i'm gonna do so i think it was it's both it was his own spirit based on the leading of the holy spirit Think about this. 
Paul didn't have full disclosure. Not the Holy, it's not like the Holy Spirit said, okay, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to get there by Pentecost, and all these things are going to happen. He, had, he didn't have that idea. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't have full disclosure. But he did have one thing that the Holy Spirit communicated to him more than once. And that was, the, it says that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now think about this. If you're Paul, and, and you sense that the Holy Spirit's telling you to go to Jerusalem. And, and as you're going, you're stopping at this, different places. And people with the gift of prophecy saying, Paul, uh, thus saith the Lord, man, you're, you're in for trouble when you get there. You're going to be in chains. There's tribulation coming for you. How many of us would go, man, I wonder if maybe I, maybe I didn't really sense the Holy Spirit right. I mean, how many of us would, would go full well knowing that we're going to go into tribulation or persecution? That's a tough thing. But you see, Paul had resolve, and he had determination. I'm going to do it. Why did Paul, or how did he express it? He says, none of these things move me. What are these things that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the uncertainty of what he would be doing. Sometimes we don't want to do anything until we know fully what's, okay, Lord, uh, you've got to lay it out to me. What's going to happen? But God wants us to walk by faith. And Paul didn't have certainty of what he would be doing, but he did have certainty of chains and tribulations. And both of those things, those things don't move me. None of these things move me. We need to ask ourselves as believers, what would move me? What would move you? How about persecution? If, if, if all of a sudden it became illegal to be a Christian, if, if, if you were, well, we are getting labeled hate you know, hate mongers and all these other phobics and all this stuff. But if it became down to the point where if you showed up here this morning or you carried a Bible or you talked about Jesus, you're going to go to jail. Would that move you? How about financial disaster? I know many of us in our nation live paycheck to paycheck. We're just one paycheck away from being bankrupt or being in trouble financially. There's savings rates really low in our nation. Well, would financial disaster move you? How about the death of a loved one? That's a real challenge. Or maybe sickness or a terminal disease or something. Would that move you? Maybe betrayal of a spouse or a closest friend. What would move you? We have to ask ourselves that. You see, because we have to have resolve. Paul said, none of those things move me. He had resolve. How could Paul be resolved to press forward in the face of certain persecution. He says, man, I don't count my life dear to myself. This is a consistent theme in Paul's writing. We can see it in so many letters. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says this, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, man, it doesn't care. I don't care if I die because I'm going to be present with the Lord. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as I'm living my life, man, I'm going to be living for Christ. And if I die, hey, that's great. I'm going to be with Jesus. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer me who's living. It's Christ living in me. John wrote this in 1 John 3.16. He says, By this we know love, because he laid down, speaking of Jesus, he laid down his life for us, and we also had to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
Paul was ready to lay down his life for the ministry, for the brethren, that, for the people that he ministered to. In Revelation 12, 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony that they did not love their lives to the death. See, if you don't hold your life dear to yourself, then none of these things will move you either. Jesus said in John 12, 25, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We need to ask ourselves, man, what's going to move me from my relationship with the Lord? Is anything. And hopefully you, like Paul, would have resolve and say, none of of these things move me. Now, saying that, Paul had opportunities. That was challenge. It wasn't just, okay, I'm going to make that determination. Now everything's going to go smooth because I made that resolve. No, actually, that resolve is going to get tested. You make a resolve this morning, and none of those things are going to move me. I guarantee there's going to be testing for it. Paul was tested throughout his ministry, and yet he remained faithful. And then Paul here shares his goal in life. He says that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The race. Some of your Bibles might say the course, but it, it's basically Paul, again, he, he, he looked at the things around him and he used them as examples. And, and the, 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 uh, what used to be the Olympic, the original Olympic Games, the, the running races and everything in Greece, that's what Paul was looking at and that's what he's referring to that he could finish that race with joy. You know, we all, as believers, have a course marked out for us by God. Each one of us. And it's a unique individual course that God has for each one of us. Paul was keenly mindful of his race to run. He knew what his course was, and he ran it. But Paul was resolved not to only just complete his race. I'm just going to get through and make it to the end. He wanted to finish with joy. He wanted to finish with joy. Let me ask you this. Do you have joy in serving the Lord? Administering here at Calvary Chapel, there's different ways you can minister. Are you joyful in your serving and in your ministry? Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And yet sometimes it's like, We lose joy in our serving. Why? I don't know. We're doing it in our own strength, probably. Not relying on the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I encourage you to recognize what your course is, what the Lord has laid out for your life, and, and and then run that course. And be joyful, because you know, if you're looking for joy in your life, there is no greater joy than doing exactly what the Lord's called you to do, and you know that you're doing what the Lord's called you to do, and you're being faithful to it. There's no greater joy than that. And his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. He doesn't give us things that are like, oh, it's so heavy. He, it's light, and it's easy. Verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. As far as Paul was concerned as he's speaking to these guys, he felt that he was finishing, he's reaching the end, the finish line in his race. 
Now, we know, he didn't know at that point, but we know after the fact that he did make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. We know that he was beaten and he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was imprisoned for two years by Felix the governor. After that, he was sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. But what Paul didn't know was that he would be released later from that imprisonment there in Rome, and he would live his life 10 more years, about 10 more years after this, and then he would suffer, be rearrested again, and then he would suffer mar- martyrdom. But if, if the Lord had laid all that out to Paul, it wouldn't have mattered to Paul. It wouldn't have mattered to Paul because he had that resolve in his life. His life was not his own. He was bought at a price, and Paul knew that. The fourth characteristic is faithfulness to his calling. Look, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now as Paul is sharing this with these elders, undoubtedly he had the prophet Ezekiel in mind. In Ezekiel 33, verse 7, the Lord tells Ezekiel, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. In other words, Paul said, you know, I I haven't shunned to declare to you uh, the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of the blood. Paul never, he didn't keep back. Like Like I said earlier, or he said, I didn't keep anything back from you. Now, I said in the very beginning, there's a reason why I picked this passage of Scripture. There's something that's going around, and as you know, Pastor Chuck Smith, is, you know, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord, and, and uh, the Calvary Chapel movement as a whole, it's been, it's been kind of sort of you know, moving along, and now there's a little bit of rumblings going on within the whole Calvary Chapel movement. And uh, I just became aware of very recently um, at a pastor's conference, a Northwest Pastor's Conference, a lot of pastors, uh, if you go to some of these conferences, uh, they'll have kind of like a panel or a discussion panel. And I was going to play this discussion, but it's, it's kind of long, so I don't want to do it. So I just want to kind of bring it down to a nutshell. Um, at this conference, there was a very prominent Calvary Chapel pastor. And as they're having this discussion, it's, it's, it became apparent that he's moving away from teaching through the Old Testament. That he basically believes that Paul here is not speaking, when he talks about the whole counsel of God, that he's not speaking of the Old Testament. Um, he believes that the New Testament contains the whole counsel of God alone. And, and his feelings is if we start sharing the Old, Covenant, the Old Testament with, like you have a, on a Sunday morning, you have a new believer, um, it's going to be too hard for them to bear. To, to hear the, the Old Testament. This is a Calvary Chapel, a prominent Calvary Chapel pastor who's moving in this direction. Um, and I take issue with his opinion. When Paul said this, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, the only thing he had was the Old Testament. They didn't have, the New Testament wasn't written yet. He only had the Old Testament. This is what Paul is referring to. 
Not only that, I have a few reasons. When you consider the painstaking, miraculous preservation of the Old Testament scriptures, and if you understand how the Old Testament was preserved from the time that it was first written to today, the, old, the Bible that you hold in your hands today, the Old Testament, the Jewish scribes, they copied scriptures word for word, not sentence for sentence, word for word they scriptured. Um, they, they copied, excuse me. Um, they counted the letters in their scrolls. And they would count, and they could go all the way down to the middle of the scroll, and they knew exactly what letter should be in the middle of the scroll. And if that letter didn't show up there, that meant there's an error somewhere. If they had more than three letter, uh, errors in one's entire scroll, like the scroll of Isaiah, if they found three letter or mistakes, they would destroy the scroll. They would burn it or bury it because they didn't want bad copies to be circulated. I mean, if you think about it, this is like the, the ancient form of Xerox machines. You know, maybe you guys, how many of you guys remember Xerox machines? Or lithographs, you know, the, I used to love the smell of them when they came off. I love that glue smell or whatever it was. Probably wasn't. That's probably why I'm the way I am. <laughs> he said, "Sniff my lithographs." <laughs> but it was like a modern photocopy, basically. Or I mean, an ancient photocopy. Um, why would God have the Jewish people preserve the text like that? To where the Bible that you hold in your hands, the Old Testament that you hold in your hands, the New Testament is a whole other story, which is fascinating. But that's another Bible study. Um, but why would the Old Testament scriptures in your hand that you can confidently believe it is what was originally penned. Why would God do that if it wasn't important for us to have? Why would he preserve it if we didn't really need it? You know? The Old Testament gives context to the New Testament. You may have heard this saying before, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I love going through the Old Testament and finding the principles and the pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament because that's all, it's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to the need for a Messiah and the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. And even though Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, there are important and valuable principles for us to learn from the Old Testament. In fact, Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Paul here is talking about uh, the children of Israel, Moses and the children of Israel going through the wilderness. And as he gets to the end of, of, dis- of reminding them about their, their, their experience in the wilderness, he says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They've been written for us. And so why am I bringing all this up? Well, you know, uh, every Calvary Chapel is autonomous. In other words, you know, we're, we're, we're not a denomination, so there's not this person that says, thou shalt do it. This, you know, we have the freedom as the Holy Spirit leads us, individual pastors, to, to go through the Bible the way we feel led to go through. But there's a distinctive in Calvary Chapel that we go cover chapter, chapter, verse by verse. That, that's one of the distinctives. That's what makes us unique as, as a movement. Um, so... You know, I, I purposely didn't mention that pastor. You could dig it in the internet and find out who it is, but to me, it's not a big issue. Um, you know, and, and if that's what they feel the Lord's leading them to do, that's that's them. But I can tell you what we're going to do here. We're going to stay the course of what we've done. We're going to teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Old Testament and New Testament. 
Um, and uh, as I shared with many of you already, um, we're, we finished going through the entire book, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we're going to start Genesis. And unless the Lord lays it on my heart, something else before then, next week I think is when I'm going to start Genesis going through. Um, and and it's, it's kind of a big deal what's going on. So I just, you know, uh, I guess, I don't know. I'll, enough said about that, but anyways. Um, but that's what we're going to do. That's our focus. And, uh, of course, I'm not going to just go from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You know, I'm not going to just do them you know, all the way through for, like, five years. And then, okay, now we're in the New Testament. I, I move around, so I don't just go old. If, if you've been here for any length of time, I, I'll do an Old Testament book, and then I might do a New Testament or a couple New Testament books, then I'll go back to the Old Testament. I'll try to mix it up. Um, but uh, I've had people go, are you just an Old Testament church? Because I'm going through so much. I'm like, no, we're just, that's where we're at, where we happen to be at. But... But that's what we're going to do. Continuing on here, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Here's the fifth characteristic, and that's stewardship. Paul is speaking here to the leaders of the Ephesian church, and the very first thing he says is take heed to yourselves. First and foremost, cultivate your own personal relationship with the Lord. And I can tell you from experience, it's easy to neglect your own personal walk with the Lord because of ministry, the, 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 the busyness of ministry. And I've you know, I got to prepare a Bible study, and I've got to just focus on that. I also need to focus on my own relationship with the Lord. First and foremost, take heed to yourselves. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus came to visit them, and, and there was lots of ministry to do, and Martha got so busy doing the ministry, and it wasn't bad, right? Because they needed to get done. What did Mary do? Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Now, did she help later? She might have. I don't know. We don't, we don't know. But the point is, we can get so busy serving that we can neglect our own walk with the Lord, and that's, that's a danger. And so he's warning them, hey, take heed to yourselves first. And then take heed to all the flock. And he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's the Holy Spirit that appoints leaders. Now, I know, you know, in our culture, we've got a democratic society. We elected presidents. You know, we had only two to choose from, but we elected them, so to speak. Um, we choose. And sometimes that gets carried into the church. Well, we're going to vote this person in. We're going we're gonna to select this person. And... Uh, but it's the Holy Spirit that appoints people. It's the Holy Spirit that does. He's telling the leaders, it's the Holy Spirit who has appointed you. You are a shepherd of the church that he purchased with his own blood. They're not your people. They're his people. This is very serious business. God's saying through Paul to these guys, be a good steward of the people God has entrusted to your care because they're mine. They're not yours. And one day I'm going to hold you accountable for that. Peter kind of echoes the theme there in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Don't lord it over those people because they're not your people. You're not my people. You're the Lord's people. He's just 
chosen me to shepherd, to be an under-shepherd for him. Verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The sixth characteristic is watchfulness. He says, even among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. There are times when Paul named names. In our culture, it's like, you know, I don't want to name a name, another ministry, because, you know. But there are times when we have to name names. Uh, I came across uh, a name, a, a person who's in the church. He's a leadership, not in Calvary Chapel, but his name is John Crowder. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy. But he does this thing. He's called toking the Holy Ghost. It's like, I'm going <laughs> to Jehovah Wanna. And, he, and th- their worship service is getting high in the spirit. And, and their service is getting all weird. I mean, it's bizarre. Um, that's perverse. That's blasphemy in my mind. Uh, and, but there's people out there, and, and there are people that are following them. How do you know a wolf between a sheep? They look the same. If, they're, if, it's, a sheep, if it's a wolf disguised in sheep's clothing, you can't tell by the way they look, the way they talk, but you can tell by what they eat. Because sheep eat grass, wolves eat sheep. And so if they leave a wake of dead bodies, you know, carcasses in their path, you know that they're a wolf. And so Paul's warning these guys, hey, be watchful. They're going to creep in. They're going to creep in. And, 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 you know, you look at the church in Ephesus, and they had problems later on. Things did happen in Ephesus. Verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Listen, Paul, he set an example by living a transparent life among them. His message and his teaching was consistent. He was resolved to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. He was faithful to that calling. He was a good steward of what God entrusted him. He was watchful, and he warned them of wolves and sheep's clothing. What more could Paul do? I mean, he did pretty much everything that he needed to do, So now he says, man, I just commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I'm I'm leaving you in God's hands. At that point, he did everything he had to do or everything he could do. And now it's just, hey, it's up to you and God, your relationship with the Lord. There's only so much I can do as a pastor. I can't tell you what to do. I can advise you and counsel, um, but I can't tell you what to do. I I can't follow you. Are you reading your Bible today? I might ask you that, but, you know, I, I can't. Compul, you know, force anybody to do anything. It's, it's up to you, your relationship with the Lord. Take heed to yourself. And so Paul commended them to the word of God and, and to the, excuse me, commended them to God and to the word of his grace. And the seventh characteristic, I think, that jumps out in here, to me anyways, is the foundation of the word of God. He says the word of God is able to build you up, to edify you. Listen, do you want to grow in your Christian walk? Do you want to move beyond where you were presently in your life? It's like, man, I'm always struggling in the same area. I get to this point and I feel like I'm in the same spot. I, I want to move beyond that. Um, it's not going to happen apart from feeding, meditating, and applying the Word of God in your life. It won't happen apart from that. 
You want to grow in your, in, in your walk as a Christian? It's not hearing more messages. It's not, you know, getting more, you know, I'm going to just worship more. I mean, those are all good things. It's not bad things. It's the Word of God that's going to transform your life. It's getting into the Word of God, reading it, meditating on it, dwelling on it, and then applying it in your life. You'll grow. You'll produce fruit. The old adage is true. Sin will keep you from the Bible, but the Bible will keep you from sin. As you and I allow God's words to sink deep into our hearts, to take root and grow as we obey it, it's going to produce the fruit of sanctification in our lives. It's going to produce fruit as you grow in the word. So that foundation is so important. Verse 33, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the eighth and the final characteristic is don't be a burden to those you should be ministering to. Don't be a burden. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to serve, I mean, not come to be served, but to serve. He had, of anybody, he had the right to just come and go, okay, guys, minister to me, I'm, I'm, I'm God, you know. He had, he had the right to do that. Besides, I didn't come to do that. I came to serve. Paul wasn't in the ministry to get rich or acquire possessions. Think about it. I mean, before, he was... He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was in that, uh, that closed group of Pharisees. His teacher was Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis. I, I, I can imagine his life was probably fairly comfortable before he became to faith in Jesus Christ. But you know what he said about all that? Philippians 3.7, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the ex- excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. It's interesting here. Paul, he says, you guys seen, I've labored with my own hands. I, I labored to support myself. But notice he also not only supported himself, but he labored to support those who are within ministry with him. It wasn't just, I'm going to support myself. He also meant there were companions that Paul worked a job to pay to help support them as well. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And then Paul quotes Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'll, I'll challenge you to go through the Bible. You're not going to find that exact quote. And yet it's in red. In my Bible is in red letters. Jesus said it. What a minute. Wait a minute. Evidently, it's one of those things that Jesus did. Remember at the end of the Gospel of John? Jesus said, John says, man, Jesus did all these things. If we were to write it all down, the world wouldn't contain all the books that were written. I'm, I'm thinking this is probably one of the things that maybe John was referring to. They were Christ's words, though, evidently. And the Ephesians, they knew it. It was a common conversation among them. Now, I know that we don't give to receive. You know, there's people that teach that. If you give, man, God's going to give you a thousand times back. And, you know, and then people, they get into this thing. Well, if I give, it's come along. It's like an investment scheme thing. We don't give to receive. None of us do that. But I tell you what, if you want to be blessed in your life, we all kind of want blessed. We want to be blessed, right? Be a giver. It is blessed to receive. I, I mean, we've, re- we've been blessed by people that have given to us. We've received from, and it's a blessing. Sometimes people minister to you and they, you get a check in the mail or somebody comes and helps you with something. Or, or, you know, it's, like, it's a blessing. There's no doubt it's a blessing. 
But it's a greater blessing to be the one giving. It really is. It's a greater blessing. And, you know, we're not just talking about financial giving. This isn't just, this isn't just money. We're talking about giving of your time and your talent in addition to your treasure. Even giving yourselves to others. Remember, Paul says, man, you've seen my tears. Sometimes we hold back from others. We don't give of ourselves because we don't want people to know the real me. I don't want them to see my weakness and stuff, so I'm going to put on this facade of Mr. or Mrs. Spiritual. And we're not giving of ourselves. We're not saying, you know what, this is, this is the real me. I cry. I, I'm struggling in my life in this area. That's a form of giving as well. I want to encourage you in this in this body of Christ. We're a small church here, uh, you know, and, and and it feels like family here. We we shouldn't have to hold back from one another. We should be able to be transparent among, among one one another. Be willing to let people into your private life to see you in times of not only joy but times of trials and sadness. Be willing to sacrifice your me time for others. That's another thing, man. I've got my, my this is my block of time. It's for me. I've, you know, I, it's my time. But you know what? It's blessed to give, to, to sacrifice for others. If you do those things, you will be greatly blessed. And again, we're not doing it to be blessed, but there is a blessing in it. So with all these eight characteristics Paul wanted to impart to the Ephesian elders, I mean, this is the heart of Paul. He's just, he's like, I'm stopping here because I want, I want you guys to understand these things. I want to remind you of these things. I'm probably not going to see you again. What, what would you communicate to someone if it was the last time you thought you'd see them? That's how important this was to Paul. And so with these, verse 36, he ends the chapter. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for Paul's openness, for his transparency. Lord, for his resolve, his consistency. Lord, for the foundation of the word of God. Lord, he was led by your spirit. Lord, we see all these characteristics of Paul that he, he, he ministered, he led by example. We thank you that the example has been given to us. And Lord, I pray that we would follow uh, Paul in that way. Lord, that those characteristics would be our characteristics. Lord, if there's areas today that we've talked about that maybe, Lord, we, we recognize in our own walk, in our own life, that we're, we're lacking in that area. Lord, I pray, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would uh, change our hearts. Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us, uh, equip us and prepare us and use us. And, 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 Lord, do that work in us where we can't even do it ourselves, Lord. Help us to rely on you. And, Lord, I thank you for each and every person here this morning. Lord, I pray that as people go and spend time with family and friends, uh, whatever they're doing for Thanksgiving this, this coming week, Lord, I pray, Lord God, that uh, Lord, you would just go with them, that you would be a blessing to them, but also allow them to be a blessing to others. Lord, maybe it's sharing a word or just whatever it is, Lord, that you would just allow us to minister to those that we will be meeting with this week. We thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing on each and every person here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.